Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Today's episode features the music from the 1974 thriller The Towering Inferno. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi everyone, it's great to have you here for this breakdown of the score to the massively popular movie, The Towering Inferno. When you compare it to the two previous disaster films John Williams scored in the 1970s, it's no surprise that The Towering Inferno remains the most loved film on all fronts. The production value is far superior, and it got the best reviews. It was also the only one of the disaster films of the era to receive an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. Producer Irwin Allen put everything he had into The Towering Inferno in his attempt to outdo the movie Earthquake, which had just been released by Universal Pictures in October 1974. I think he also wanted to outdo The Poseidon Adventure, his last film project. What Allen had going for him was the backing of not one, but two movie studios. 20th Century Fox and Warner Brothers were prepping competing films about a skyscraper that catches fire, and instead of putting out the same film weeks apart, the studios decided to pool their resources and make one movie. This had never been done before in Hollywood, and the successful outcome set a precedent that would lead to more big-budget films being financed by two studios. Best Picture Oscar winners Braveheart and Titanic used this system with great results. With two studios putting up money, Irwin Allen had pretty much an unlimited budget available to make his movie and the money is all on screen. The action sequences are top-rate, at least for 1974, and since there was no such thing as computer effects, the only choice was to have actors and stuntmen putting themselves inside the fire in certain scenes, and the result is extreme reality. I have seen this film a lot, and I still get nervous watching Paul Newman hanging from a twisted handrail over an 80-story drop, or seeing Steve McQueen holding up a door to block the blaze from entering a stairwell. Speaking of Newman and McQueen, they were part of a major pre-release scandal that involved the two of them arguing over who gets top billing in the film. It was this kind of jostling for position on the marquee that caused McQueen to bow out of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in 1969, with Robert Redford taking his place. McQueen was the one making the most demands, including demanding equal billing with Newman, who was undoubtedly the bigger star after headlining the Oscar-winning picture The Sting the previous year, and McQueen wanted to have the same number of lines as Newman. I didn't count the number of lines each actor had in the movie, but I doubt that deal worked out. While McQueen might not have gotten sole top billing, I think the one thing he can claim victory on is having bluer eyes than Newman in the film. I don't remember seeing McQueen's eyes so blue in any of his previous films, and you have to wonder if he either got special contact lenses or asked the cinematographer to light him so his eye color became more prominent. While Allen was able to get five Oscar winners in The Poseidon Adventure, he only got two for The Towering Inferno, Jennifer Jones and William Holden. But Newman would get his Oscar in 1986, while his co-star, Faye Dunaway, would win an acting Oscar two years after The Towering Inferno. It's a great cast that also includes Fred Astaire in a rare role when he doesn't sing or really dance, 
And there's a belief that his Academy Award nomination, as well as his Golden Globe win for his performance, was sentimental in nature and not really for his performance as a con man wooing a wealthy widow, played by Jennifer Jones. You must miss your villain. Well, yes and no. It, it gets rather dull in the south of France. It really does. I mean, nothing but swimming, yachting, partying, and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and believe it or not, they, uh, they fight over the few eligible bachelors. Even such old scraps as I. <laughs> no false humility, please. Oh, shall we? <clears throat> I, uh... I, I decided to come back to the reality of San Francisco uh, to uh, regain my perspective and my humility and spend more time at the one thing in this world that I'm really good at, the stock market. Monte Carlo's losses, San Francisco's gain. John Williams was under pressure to write the score for The Towering Inferno immediately after his work on Earthquake. For starters, The Towering Inferno was a long film at 2 hours and 44 minutes. Though there isn't music in every minute of of the film, there had to be a lengthy spotting session to figure out what scenes needed music. I really appreciate the restraint Williams and director John Gillerman had to not put music in too many scenes. There is a stretch of nearly 30 minutes near the end that gets no music, and I will talk about the effectiveness of not putting music into that part of the film a little bit later. If you know anything about the score to The Towering Inferno, you probably know about the accusations that Williams pretty much copied his work from Earthquake into The Towering Inferno. I completely understand the accusations, given that both films are in the same genre and Williams went straight from Earthquake to The Towering Inferno, but I don't think those comparisons are valid. If any comparison should be made, it should be between The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. Williams writes music in the low register for both of those films, underscoring the doom and tragedy of the proceedings. But the score for The Towering Inferno has a bit more, well, for lack of a better word, urgency to it, with a driving bass line that is prevalent in almost all of the action scenes. In The Poseidon Adventure, the music takes a more somber line, which is fine for that film. But I think when you take into account that The Towering Inferno seems to be a tribute to heroic firefighters, there has to be a bigger sense of optimism. So in the end, there is no need to compare any of the films. You'll hear that urgency right away in the opening credits of The Towering Inferno as we follow a helicopter on a long journey to San Francisco and the title building. You'll hear the urgency in the ostinato played by the strings and it gives way to a sweeping melody that plays beautifully over the ostinato for the full five-minute scene. Thank you. 
It's one thing to compose that piece, but how to conduct it? You've got that lush melody playing in one section of the orchestra, while the other section is keeping rhythm through that fast ostinato. How do you keep both sections of the orchestra performing two different tempos and different melodies as if they were meant to be together? You know, as someone who has never conducted an orchestra, I'm just amazed at Williams's effort to get the studio orchestra to perform so exquisitely. Now, in stark contrast to the opening titles, our first piece of underscore takes place during a rendezvous between Newman's character, a man named Doug, who designed the skyscraper, and his girlfriend, Susan, played by Faye Dunaway. The two have a tender love scene in the bedroom adjacent to Doug's office, and instead of watching these two lovers kiss, I always kept wondering, how late does Doug work every day to need a full bedroom in his office? I took the time to watch the scene again, and I felt the romance of the scene thanks to the love theme that sounds like it definitely belongs in 1974, with the horn accompanied in the background by the electric piano. The large 138-story skyscraper is being dedicated with the lavish party full of celebrities. And to mark the occasion, the building's exterior is bathed in light. Naturally, this moment needed music, and it's quintessential Williams with its strong bass statements that are synced to each sequence of lights turning on. Interestingly, the album title of that musical cue is called Let There Be Light, which Williams will use three years later as the title for the opening music of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Whether or not this is coincidence, accident, or intentional, I think the title works best for the towering inferno, though it does adequately describe the moment in Close Encounters as well. A man named Dan Bigelow is the public relations man for the firm that erected the building, which, by the way, doesn't get a name other than the Glass Tower. Before he heads up to the party, Dan goes to his office under the guise of needing his secretary to dictate a letter. 
Turns out Dan and his secretary, Lori, are having a secret affair, and they have a quickie before the party. The music you will hear, somewhat of a love theme, has a melody that will be fleshed out in the next scene. And that next scene is the party on the building's top floor where a singer is belting out this song. We may never love like this again Don't stop the flow We can't let go We may never love like this again And touch the We May Never Love Like This Again was written by Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn, the same men who wrote The Morning After for The Poseidon Adventure and won an Oscar for it. The story goes that Kasha and Hirshhorn were not at the top of the list for writing a song for The Towering Inferno. Fred Astaire wanted to sing a song in the film and even went so far as to include that stipulation in his contract. But the song he wrote wasn't well received and I don't think it was ever recorded or at least never made available commercially. Erwin Allen asked John Williams to write a song, but Williams had such a disdain for songwriting that he refused. 
that meant the men who won Oscars for songwriting finally got their chance at a love ballad. I really do kind of like this song. The lyrics sound very cheesy when they're heard away from the film, but when you attach it to the drama that is about to unfold, the words take on a strong meaning. I'm especially talking about these three lines. Do you get it? This is about the tallest building in the world, so the architect and the builder and everybody involved, they're literally touching the sky, at least as much as they can inside a building. And then there's also this phrase in the song. I think this is more self-explanatory with the haze of the fire and people reaching out to save one another. So there's a lot of meaning in this song, and Al Kasha and Joel Hirshhorn really did well to kind of make us understand what is going on in this film, just in this three or four minute song. I think that's why We May Never Love Like This Again won the Oscar for original song, because the lyrics tell the story of the drama so well. Just like the year they won for The Morning After, Kasha and Hirshhorn were competing against an animal. In 1972, it was a rat named Ben. In 1974, it was a dog named Benji. Kasha and Hirshhorn would return to the Oscars once more, this time for the song score to the animated film Pete's Dragon in 1977. Now, unlike The Morning After, We May Never Love Like This Again is less hopeful which is why the melody is being used to underscore the scenes between Dan and Lori. And we fully understand that about 25 film minutes later, when the small fire that started in a storage closet climbs to the floor where Dan and Lori are basking in afterglow. Lori smells smoke and thinks it's a cigarette burning. But Dan thinks otherwise, opening the door to his office to see fire just outside, preventing their escape. I love John Williams' dramatic use of brass to highlight the surprise shot of the fire because it comes as a surprise to us as well. As Dan pretends to call for help, we get some awesome piano in the low register as the tension builds. In perfect fashion, John Williams is not overstating the danger just outside the door. Thank you. 
And the scene ends with the song's main theme, stating that it's quite possible that Dan and Lori really may never love like they did a few minutes earlier. Later on, in a silly act of chivalry, Dan tries to find a way out by shielding himself from the flames, but is burned and dies. Lori suffers a similar fate when the ceiling starts to collapse and she falls out of a window to escape. Lisa Lett, the widow that is being courted by Fred Astaire's character, rescues two children trapped in their apartment, and Doug comes by to help them get to safety. He takes them down a stairwell that explodes due to a gas leak. Doug almost falls to his death, but manages to hang onto the handrail that breaks apart, but still works as a way to safety. What I love about this scene is not just Paul Newman doing his own stunts, but seeing Jennifer Jones shimmy down the handrail in a quest for realism in the film. Surely, Jones saw Shelley Winters doing her own stunts in the Poseidon Adventure and thought she could do her own stunts as well. She does brilliantly, with John Williams scoring her descent to safety with quietly tense strings. Williams is not out to create false scares or hide in the drama more than it needs to. I think other top composers of the time, like Jerry Goldsmith, might have done just that and ruined the scene by making their music noticed. Incidentally, Goldsmith would try his hand at disaster movie music with Irwin Allen's follow-up, The Swarm, in 1978. Doug has to traverse a deep shaft in order to reach the promenade room and get help since the main door is blocked by spilled concrete that dried. I like the shot of Newman making his way across the shaft because it looks very real, 
even though movie buffs will realize that it's a matte painting. And Williams underscores the uneasiness of this with some great percussion elements. Fans of John Williams' music will recognize that music immediately. It'll come around again eight years later to open E.T. the Extraterrestrial. The sound is made by rubbing a device against a gong, and it effectively gives you the chills. Earlier, I mentioned a lengthy dramatic sequence in which no music appears in the final film. It's about 30 minutes long and features Lisolette falling to her death from the scenic elevator, McQueen's fire chief riding a cable to the stranded scenic elevator and hooking the cable so a helicopter can lower it to safety, and then its successful rescue. Williams did write a little bit of music for the final minutes of the rescue, starting when a fireman slips and almost falls before McQueen catches him. It's a tense moment that gets no music in the final cut, and I'm fine with that. Williams, as well as Allen and Gillerman, Note how tense the scenes are by themselves, and took a great risk to keep the music out of that sequence. I think this is one reason why Williams received an Oscar nomination, not just for the music he wrote, but for the music he didn't write. And I think it also sets us up for the music that's to come. The finale features a daring attempt to douse the flames by exploding the water tanks on the roof and letting the water flood the building. Musically, this is the highlight of the film, as it features almost 10 minutes of non-stop music, which is very welcome after the 30 minutes of no music. It starts as Mike, the fire chief played by McQueen, takes a helicopter to the roof to meet Doug to plant the explosives that will set off the deluge. As Mike gets a look at the extent of the fire throughout the building, we see our first full shot of the tower, with Williams giving us the main theme in full brass. And then that ostinato from the opening titles returns to set up the urgency of the situation as Mike exits a helicopter, giving way to another urgent melody as Mike and Doug begin to rig the explosives.
The crescendo as the timer on the explosives gets closer to zero is the big payoff for this scene as everyone awaits the aftermath. Perhaps there's no other way to score this moment and it effectively telegraphs how anxious and nervous everyone is as we get close-ups of the main characters strapped into poles in the room so they don't get swept away by the rushing water. In the same way we couldn't really celebrate at the end of the Poseidon adventure, there's a sense of mourning in the air after the fire's put out in the towering inferno. But after Newman and McQueen have their final conversation together, there's a sense of optimism that perhaps buildings like this will never be erected again. As we see McQueen driving away in his car, Williams lets us cheer for the heroes of the film as he brings in the brass to close out the film. Towering Inferno was the biggest undertaking of John Williams' career at that point. He wrote about 70 minutes of music, the most he had composed for one film. That, of course, will change in a few years, but you also have to understand the time crunch he was under, and that makes this score even more impressive. To write 70 minutes of music in about a month had to be exhausting work for Williams, but as I said, he was rewarded with an Oscar nomination, 
I don't know if there were any odds placed on him winning his first original score Oscar that year, but given the huge success of Nina Roder's work on The Godfather Part Two, and especially given that Rhoda had been disqualified from the 1972 original score category because his score to the original Godfather film contained so much previously used music, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion who was going to win. So, there might have been a sense of rewarding Rhoda for The Godfather Part Two long before the film hit theaters, but we know John Williams will get his due the following year. As for Irwin Allen, The Towering Inferno marked the end of his stint as the master of the disaster movie. Yes, The Towering Inferno made a lot of money, and yes, it won three Oscars for cinematography, editing, and original song. But that wasn't enough to get him to make another really good movie. His next film, 1978's The Swarm, was a major flop, causing Allen to lose a lot of money and no small amount of clout in Hollywood. Incidentally, Allen said publicly that films like Jaws and Star Wars were the reasons why his movies were no longer viable. Now, as if 1974 wasn't busy enough for Williams with four films released that year, he decided to take on a non-film project that has gone largely unnoticed in online biographies of the maestro. It's a performance of Sergei Prokofiev's Sonata for Cello and Piano that features Williams on the piano and Edgar Lusgarden on cello. The 24-minute performance is beautiful, though the sound quality in the 1974 release on vinyl suffered. There's a 2007 digital remastered edition that sounds much better. Here's the opening minute of the first movement of the sonata. On the same album, Williams and Lusgarden performed the 20-minute Duo for Cello and Piano by David Ward Steinman. This performance is just as good, especially the finale.
Lust Garden had been performing on a few scores by John Williams before this, so the two had a great rapport. I don't know who approached whom about doing this project, but I really think it was a good decision. For no other reason, it gave Williams the opportunity to work on something not associated with movies and got him performing on the piano. And this wouldn't be the last time the two would work together. Lust Garden was given the enviable task of serving as principal cellist on the Jaws score the following year, and in 1976 he played on the scores for Midway and Family Plot. From what I could tell, his final time playing on a John Williams score was Jaws 2 in 1978. So anyway, 1974 ends with three well-received films for John Williams. Two of them ranked in the top five in terms of box office, and another set in motion an unprecedented collaboration that will continue the following year with Jaws. Unfortunately, Williams had absolutely no time to take a break from a marathon year of composing and performing. He had two big films in 1975 waiting for him, one that needed music ready to go by February. And that's the film that we will talk about in the next episode. It's The Iger Sanction, and I'll be joined by a guest co-host who ranks that score as one of his favorites by John Williams. I'm excited to have him join me for the discussion, and I'm excited to have you join us as well. Please make sure to submit a review on Apple Podcasts, and also tell your friends to subscribe to the show. You're getting a new episode every Wednesday, and I don't want you to miss them. And please send me any comments to jeffswim at aol.com, and I promise to read them. So that's it for today's show, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Until next time, the baton is down. <laughs>